Mitchell. And I'm Craig Combs. And this is episode 11 of From Dan to Beersheba, a podcast from Christ Memorial Church, where I have the pleasure and the joy of serving as senior pastor. Craig is our associate pastor uh, for education. And today, Craig, well, so a peek behind the curtain. Craig will produce the notes for each episode, and I see that the title you've given to this episode is You Can Dress Up a Pig. Was <laughs> yes. that was that the subject line of an email you meant to send to someone else and accidentally <laughs> got on? The, what does that mean, You Can Dress Up a Pig? Well, when my children were little, there was a, a Christian artist named Judy Rogers who had a song we, our kids used to sing called Isabel is a Pig. And uh, the the line goes like this. You can dress up a pig, but you can't take her out. With a bright gold ring in her pink pig snout, she will jump in the middle of a big mud puddle because a pig is a pig is a pig. So <laughs> The audience <laughs> doesn't get to hear you sing that like I did earlier. Yeah, that's so. a good point. Uh, we'll leave that for Pastor Caleb will okay. introduce that. All right. Maybe it'd be a good Christmas song. <laughs> <clears throat> so the idea is that you can dress up a pig, but it's still a pig. And you can dress up as a Christian. You can dress up your sinful ways, the sins that you need to repent from. And you can try to make them look more acceptable, but they're still going to be dirty no matter how you dress them up. And that really is what we're talking about today. We're we're talking about what do we do with our remaining sin. That's we're not answering right. the question today, why do we have remaining sin? Although that's a good question to to try to answer from the scriptures at some point, but we're taking as read at the beginning of this episode that all of our listeners have remaining sin. Yes. And if you think you don't, well you're wrong. You do. Yeah. <laughs> and so what does the Christian do about his remaining sin is really what we're after today. Yeah, that's right. I think to take a, a running start at it, I mean another way of framing the question is how is it that identifying sin accurately can help the Christian in turning from it, in repenting from it, in calling it what it is. So you're right that the, the premise of there being sin that needs to be turned from is a given. For for believers, all of life is repentance. That's Martin. We've agreed with Martin Luther on that. That was his first thesis. For the Christian, the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's turning from sin. Not just to come into the kingdom, not just in an uh, initial sort of way, from soup to nuts, the Christian life is a life of repentance. Life of repentance, that's right. right. So um, we're, we're, uh, we're listening to the scriptures uh, that tell us that while, when we were lost, we were pigs, maybe dogs, but let's <laughs> go with pigs for this uh, metaphor to work. Uh, and Christians are no longer pigs. We've been saved. We've been changed. We're not pigs. But our piggishness needs to be abandoned. Um, our Christians have to persist in repentance because sin persists now, in let, this age. Let me let me stop here and, and take us down a rabbit trail. Okay. You said we no longer remain pigs after we come to Christ. One of my favorite hymns is At the Cross, and it has this lyric. 
let's see, I'm doing this on the, on the spot here. So let me, let me get a running start to it. Um, Oh goodness. I can't remember the, the first part of the verse, but it, it goes on cross, to say, it goes on to say, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Yes. Now let's replace worm with pig for now yep. and say, is it appropriate for the Christian to sing that lyric, worm or pig? Would he devote that sacred head for such a, a worm as I? How do you think through that question? Well, I, I would probably say, if, I'm, if I want to be theologically precise, I would say he devoted that sacred head to such a worm as I and loved me so much that he wouldn't leave me in my wormliness, but would change me from being a worm to something better. And so I think that we have been born again. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Uh, old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. And, uh, and so we have been transformed. But clearly, no one, nobody seriously contends that we haven't been perfected yet. So, so I still have some wormliness about me. Yeah, but, but my primary identity is no longer as a worm or as a pig, even though there's some some yes. piggishness that yet yes. remains. Yeah, and I suppose the difference, if we're going to chase that rabbit trail, the, the author of the hymn might have not been thinking so much as of piggishness as wormliness, as in lowliness. Someone so in relation un, to God, in relation to God in yeah. his height. Whereas my metaphor of piggishness is, is a little more unclean and dirty than than wormliness is Uh, but uh, although they live in the dirt too that's they do live in the dirt that's exactly right so you know it's a it's a matter of listening to romans that says that we romans 6 we are no longer slaves to sin because we are dead to sin but alive to god and that's a fact and yet while we are not in the flesh as as uh, that term is used by the Apostle Paul, there is still flesh in us. There is fleshliness about us. And I'm not wanting to get into the technicality uh, with respect to how you talk about remaining sin in, in detail. I mean, John Murray defines the flesh as the human nature controlled and conditioned by sin. And so as Christians, we are not controlled and conditioned by sin any longer. We're not in the flesh. Which is helpful, actually, to point out, because sometimes people, uh, Christians, will excuse their sin as, oh, well, I was in the flesh in that moment. And we're saying, that's not a biblical way to talk. It's not that's a biblical not a way bi- to think. You don't go from the spirit to the flesh and back and yeah. forth like that. Before you were saved, you were in the flesh. Now that you're saved, you're in the spirit. That's right. However, that doesn't undo some basic things that the Bible teaches. Uh, one of those Jesus taught us in Mark chapter 7, where sin comes from. He said, I'm going to read a little of it. He called people to him again and said, hear me, all of you understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he goes on to say, um, uh, say it again, what comes out of a person is what defiles him from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So Jesus unequivocally 
taught us that the locus of sin is the human heart. The origin of sin is the human heart. It's, sin's not something that comes at us from the outside. It's something that comes from the inside. So uh, that's what Jesus taught us. And, and the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 writes to the church and says, it is your duty to continue to put away certain things. He says, put away what remains of sin. So however technically you wish to articulate that, we have a battle with sin going on where we're obligated as Christians to put away sinful ways that used to define us. Yeah, now that used they to don't. master us, used to control us. That's right. But are still present. Yeah. They're not, they're not altogether gone. Well, this actually, the listener would do well, perhaps, to hit the pause button and go back and listen to our already not yet episode because this bumps up against what we're talking about here. Yes. Um, there is a there is a, a definitional a um, a certain status change that has taken place a in the Christian for all. a once for all change that has taken place, and yet, well, we we can't say we're entirely free from the presence of sin. We can't even, by virtue of the fact that we're going to die, say we're entirely free from the penalty of sin. Well, that's it, right. All that exists in the already and, and not yet realm. That's right. This is an already not yet phenomenon. So Christians are not slaves to sin, and yet the sin that we fight is not an impotent enemy, but a powerful one. And Christians are already set apart for God, set apart by God. And yet Christians need to sanctify themselves, the Bible commands us. And Christians are under grace. They're not under law. And yet Christians are still guided by God's law toward our repentance. And, and we Christians, we have the mind of Christ already. And yet we need to continue to have our minds renewed. We're growing in mind renewal. And those are already not yet phenomena. So I think a, a starting premise here is that we have sin to deal with. And a, another starting premise that goes along with me choosing this title, and you can dress up a pig if you want to, but it won't help, is that sin is deceptive. Sin is, by definition, deceptive. And Christians are still liable to be deceived in some measure. There are lots of verses we could go to. Yeah, Romans 7.11 says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now, um, those who are outside of Christ have a, a powerlessness over sin's deception that those who are in Christ um, are no longer subject to, and yet we'd, have to, we'd all have to affirm that even in Christ, sin... Uh, still keeps this devilish deceptiveness. And what's that for that Romans uh, 16 passage? I'm trying to remember. Um, what does it say? Let me get there. Romans chapter 16 and verse 18 um, is talking about, uh, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the of the naive. In context, Paul's talking about um, those who 
who uh, observed these dietary laws from the Old Covenant. Yes, in 1 Corinthians 3, the apostle writes, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. It, it, Christians are still liable to a kind of deception. Uh, and, and Ephesians 4 is, is telling in this regard about putting away sin and its deception. Ephesians uh, chapter 4 is where Paul talks about the fact that we've learned Christ. We've learned it means to, to, to put off sin and put on Christ but that there is a, a progressive aspect to doing that. There's a once-for-all aspect. We once-for-all put off sin and put on Christ, and yet on and on we have to continue to put off sin. To put off your old self, Ephesians 4.22, which belongs to your former manner of life, so it's a former manner, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Yes, yes. And so as long as there's any putting off to do, deceit is going to be on the list. And, and, and it's this dressing up of a pig idea, I think, falls under the rubric of the deceitfulness of sin. Um, and, and I just think we, we have to accept the fact that deceitfulness is not always a bald lie, you know, where you just deny something. I think sin is more deceitful than simply saying, oh, no, I don't do anything wrong. But sin, sin is more subtle in its deception than that. It, sometimes we camouflage or we mislabel or we, we rename sins. And or that we, makes uh, it easier to tolerate. You, you use euphemism. Use euphemism, that's yeah. right. So, so, you know, let's just be clear about the gospel when we're talking about putting off sin and fighting sin, we're already starting from the get-go to say nobody comes to faith because he's good at fighting sin. Uh, we're talking about help for the person who has come to faith in Christ, who needs to fight sin. It's this is this is a message for believers, right? You don't you don't take the message of fight against sin as a way to work your way towards salvation. That's not the case at all. But for the believer who has come to faith in Christ, we need to be engaged in fighting our sin and putting sin off, putting it away. And, and that requires something that the Bible calls mind renewal. You know, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a famous passage. Uh, if I say it from memory, I might get it wrong. But I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, a holy and acceptable to God. And um, you got it there? You want to finish the quote for yeah, me? Yeah, which is your spiritual worship, which, the ESV puts it, or yeah, the NASB, your reasonable act yeah, of worship. rational service. Yeah, yeah. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of yes. God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So th th that's a paradigm right there, that... that as Christians, having come to faith in Christ, we need the process of mind renewal, which, which means that our minds begin to think God's thoughts. We begin to think more accurately, more truly, uh, because sin has deceived us, and now we're learning to think the truth, and we have to, to grow in it. And the growth in it is growing in doing things that are good, 
things that are acceptable, things that are complete. That's what he says, that you may prove what the will of God is. So you have to think that way to do that way. Uh, you have to you have to consider it that way and, and think about it truly in order to act truly. Uh, I, I think in, in the tradition, in our evangelical tradition, sometimes we've been made ourselves a little bit allergic to a mere intellectualism. And I agree that mere intellectualism is bad, but maybe to our harm that we haven't given enough credit to the sense in which coming to Christ and having and having ourselves born again and given a new heart and mind means that we are now in a process of being able to think better. And, and it's it, the Holy Spirit's not just changing us by some invisible process, but he's changing our minds so that we think God's thoughts after him. And as we see things correctly and think about them correctly, we also do them uh, because they're sensible and they're good and, and they're obvious. And so we want to, we want to do right. Uh, that Hebrews five says that uh, we need to have that the the mature believers who can take the meat of the word are those who have had their senses trained to discern good and evil, and he says it's the meat of God's word that does that. So all all that all that is just to say that as lost sinners, we only think worldly, sinful, and merely human thoughts, but as Christians, we can think God's thoughts. And think more clearly about sin. So, um, so th- how does this business, this metaphor that I've developed about dressing up the pig, how does it work? And I think it works in in uh, dressing up a pig works in the overlap between these three ideas. Uh, so one is one is blame shifting, and one is employing euphemisms, and one is diminishing or recategorizing uh, sins. Blame shifting for sin, euphemisms to describe sin, diminishing or changing the category of sin. So, you know, blame shifting is simply when you say, I didn't do it, he made me do it. Uh, and and the euphemism is is labeling a sin as something prettier than it is. It's specifically dressing up the pig. Diminishment is in downgrading it to something less. So look at blame shifting. We just had a sermon in our church on Genesis 3. And uh, what a classic example the fall of man in the garden is that shows how sin immediately leads to blame shifting. Because what happens when God comes up to confront Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned by eating the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat? He turns to Adam and says, what's going on here? And Adam says, well, Lord... The woman that you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate. Okay, so you just—I mean, you just hear that um, the woman that you gave—it's her fault, or the, the woman, woman that, that you, you, yeah, yeah, it's your fault, God. And uh, <clears throat> and the fact that uh, the woman says, "Well, the serpent deceived me," that doesn't remove the blame for saying, "And I ate," but that's. That's the nature of sin is to push the blame in another direction. You know, this is so insidious, too, because if it came to us um, uh, in a red outfit with horns and a, and a, and a forked uh, tail and a pitchfork and all this kind of stuff, we'd see it exactly for what it is. But, you know, I've had to be careful in my language with my children mm. and, uh, and, and not 
try to talk with them about their sin um, in these causal sorts of categories. It was a discussion that I had in my, in my home with my children recently that your brother hitting you is not the cause of you hitting your brother back yes. or in speaking sinfully to your brother. You are responsible for your sin. He sinned, but your sinful response is your sin. Yes. But but I can sometimes if I'm not careful with my words, I can say, "Oh, did he did he cause you to hit him by doing this?" Yeah. yeah. And that's just that's unhelpful because <laughs> it is. we can't go in that causal uh, no. kind of relationship no. at all. That's exactly where we do go. Yeah. And and it's blame shifting. We say, and this is such a common thing to say, that guy makes me so mad. Well, you know, hit the pause button. What do you mean he makes you mad? All you mean is he does things that you don't approve of, and then you react in a bad way. You engage your own sinful anger because you're not exercising self-control. He didn't make you do anything. But that's how we that's how we say it. And when we say it that way, it helps us think about it that way. And while we're thinking about it that way, we're not thinking very much about turning from it. Because I can't turn from his sin. He's the problem. That guy makes me mad. He's the problem. Blame shifting. Uh, it's no help to repentance. Uh, or you, you hear a guy say, well, you know, that girl, man, she, she dresses in such a sexy outfit. I can't, I can't help but look at her. And, and lust, I'm lust after her. I mean, look how she dresses. Like, are, do you think for one minute that her clothing is responsible for your sin? She's not responsible for your sin. Now, it's a separate question. Should she dress that way? She's probably got her own issues before God that she needs to repent from if she's dressing in a trashy way that shows off too much. But your sinful thoughts will not be excused by God for her dress. <laughs> That's right. And you're not going to do make much progress in turning from your sinful thoughts while you're blaming it on her dress. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the, the guy who says, you know, I, I'm basically an honest guy, but this job I'm working, it doesn't pay anything. And, you know, I just have to shave off a little bit of money on my taxes because we're having trouble making ends meet. It's like, really? So are you saying you stole? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying, you know, I need to make ends meet and my job pays poorly. It's just a blame shift. My situation sort of demanded that I behave this way. And, and the Bible is telling us no situation ever demands that you behave in an immoral way. Yeah. It never does. So the shift, shifting the blame, I've heard, this, I've heard this in marriages, and I know you have, and you've heard it both ways. But, you know, my husband is so unreasonable, and he's been so irresponsible that I just I can't be in submission to, to someone like that. And, and it sounds so reasonable, right? Yeah, who would want to be in submission to a jerk like that? You're right. He's been horrible. But no, that, the, the question of how he's been is its own question. But the question of what you're doing in response to that situation, that's your issue. Yeah, and you can, I mean, we could go ad infinitum down, down a list of, of examples. But another that comes to mind quickly is the the children, the grown children of parents who aren't all that honorable and yes. who see that as an excuse to disobey or to ignore God's command to honor your father and mother. Yes, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's right. And so coupled with this 
blame shifting is is the use of euphemisms. These aren't really perfectly discrete categories. They overlap. They it slops over. But uh, you know, the classic example in our culture is those people who refuse to call abortion the killing of a baby. Reproductive freedom. Reproductive freedom, they want to call it. The removal of a fetus. Uh, without defining any words, you know, what's a fetus? Oh, it's a baby. And what's but, removal? Oh, it's dismemberment. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, but but uh, Christians are capable of that too. You know, God, through the prophet Malachi, called Israel out, and uh, he did it in a sort of a rhetorical uh, back and forth uh, with an interlocutor, but he says, uh, will a man rob God? And the, and the interlocutor says, oh, how have we robbed you? And he says, in not giving me my tithes and offerings. Uh, well, you know, in their minds, well, I didn't take anything. I just didn't give something. Well, God says you're robbing him. Uh, you're, that, you know, you're using a euphemism for your failure to give God what he's due, God said through the prophet. And I think we're still guilty of doing that. You know, the person who says, well, I was, I was only sharing what I shared out of, out of concern. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not gossiping. I'm just, I'm just sharing a concern. Maybe someone wants to pray about this. And That's it's, right. It's a, it, Craig, certainly you're not against prayer requests. Exactly. And, and you want me to be honest about my prayers and my requests, right? Uh, sure, I want you to be honest. But what are you really doing? You know, the proverb says... Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like the one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Yeah, that's that's the wisdom of God that says if it's not your business, don't meddle in it. Um, but but we pass that off by labeling it as as something else. Uh, I've I've seen grown men professing Christians, and I believe true Christians, who fell into nearly up against grievous sexual sin, hmm. but who were developing alliances with another woman outside their marriage. But they weren't calling it that. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, having an affair at all. I, this, she is just my friend. She's just a friend. And so sometimes friends have lunch. We weren't on a date. I'm just, that's just a friend. My coworker's my friend. And by calling it that, he's not ringing the alarm bells. And I'm developing a relationship with another woman. Uh, he's labeling it with a euphemism that's bad for his soul. Because if he goes down that road, it's grievous. It's grievous. Um, I, uh, uh, yeah, I've never spoken a cross word to that person. I don't hate that person. But the proverb, the proverb tells us, Proverbs 26, whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. And it's just that idea that you can, you can call it something else, you can label it with a euphemism, and it makes it seem less. It insulates you from needing to turn from it. And I have to confess how often I've been guilty of these things. You and I don't uh, sort of sit in the, in the judgment seat and wag our finger. I have, I have 
only thinly cloaked gossip as concern, and I have only thinly and uh, the last uh, and the final analysis unsuccessfully cloaked sinful anger and thereby hatred and thereby even the seed of murder. Jesus says, "Yes." Um, with well, I'm 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 righteously indignant, um, or or that kind of thing. So yes. so these euphemisms land on my doorstep, and uh, I want to repent from them. As they do mine, Mitch, as they do mine. Slopping over out of euphemism and blame shifting is just categorizing sin in a uh, what we presume to be a smaller category, a lesser, a less grievous category of sin. You know, we say, I'm well, I'm not angry. I, I just get frustrated at that situation. Somehow frustration doesn't sound as, as bad as anger, or, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the guy who's struggling with pornography, that's what he says. He's not saying I love porn. He's saying, I'm, I just, I'm not committing adultery. I just, I've got a bad habit of looking at a racy pictures. Yeah. That's not a helpful thing to call that when that's the sin that you're dealing with. Or the guy who says, you know, I'm, I, I, my leisure, my golf or my whatever, it's not an idol. Good grief. I'm just, I'm trying to enjoy the reward of my labors. I've worked hard, and I feel like it's it's okay to enjoy the reward of my labors. It sounds very, very harmless when you when you can diminish it, diminish it in that way. And here here's the one that's really set my mind down this this path. I'll be honest. It's it's when we we diminish uh, we diminish the category of the sin that, that we're in is that the person who says, and I've said it, you know, I keep. I have to keep forgiving that guy every time I think of him. But here's a guy that did something to me, and he sinned against me. And I had to forgive him. And then, you know, I just, every time I think of him, I just have to forgive him all over again. And it it sounds very noble when you say it that way. I'm doing so well that I keep practicing forgiveness over and over again. And we haven't stopped to say, is that what's going on? Did did you forgive him for the sin that he committed? Is that sin chalked up to the blood of Christ? If you forgave him, then that debt's canceled, isn't it? You don't have to forgive him again. You already forgave him. What you're saying is you judged him again. You found him guilty. You brought him back into your courtroom. Because we're talking about having to forgive someone over and over again for one a for, one-time sin. That's right. That's right. For something he did at a particular time, and every time I think of it, I have to forgive him again. No, every time you think of it, you drag him back into court and you convict him again. And that's you judging him. That's you judging him. You know, I think about Ephesians 4.32 in this conversation where Paul says... Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Yes. And like you, Craig, in the past, I've I've held out that re-forgiveness of a one-time sin as a very noble sort of thing to do. I've I've baptized it in my own heart as a very noble, righteous thing. But when you start to unpack this, you'll find that isn't at all how God in Christ has forgiven us. What a, a terror is the thought that that's how God in Christ yes. has forgiven us, that, that God 
would 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 open it up to relitigating our past sins that he had once forgiven. Yes, yes. God God wipes it out and it, he doesn't revisit it. And it's our own sin that revisits it. But if we want to stop doing that, it's helpful to call it what it is. Because I can move over from thinking my struggle is to forgive this person again and again. Instead, my struggle is to repent. Okay, well, at least I can call a spade a spade now. I can call it what it is. And, uh, and now I need to repent. I'm being judgmental. God help me to repent from judging this person whose sin is already forgiven. That's, that's a, a faithful way to go. Uh, uh, and so the thing is, with euphemisms and blame shifting and diminishing categories of sin, we need to be reminded that the Word of God is going to provide for us all the right categories that we need for calling sin what it really is. And I have found, uh, Mitch, in my own struggles to repent and, and occasionally helping men struggling with various addictive behaviors to attempt to repent, it's helpful to press deep and call the sin what it really is at the heart level. Even though that name is uglier, that ugliness is helpful in seeing that it's ugly stuff I want to turn away from. Yeah, that's actually the redemptive approach we'll talk about uh, a little bit more as we go on. But to call sin, sin is helpful. And to and to urge sinners to call their sin, sin is kind. Yes, it is. So, you know, I'm reminded of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, and he calls out idolatry in a number of places. But in, in chapter 14, um, the prophet uh, is, is uh, confronted by the elders of Israel. And these are the unfaithful elders of Israel at this time. And, and in Ezekiel 14, it says, the elders of the, Certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And that verse alone means they came to me to inquire of the Lord. What is the Lord saying to us? What is the Lord? What's the what's God's will for us? What's what's God's direction? Give us the scoop. That's what that means. And he says, the word of the Lord came to me, quote, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore, speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel uh, who are all estranged from me through their idols. And so the, the, the pattern is, you're coming to God saying, well, what's God's will for my life? And God, and God is saying, my will is that you, A, stop holding idols in your heart, and B, stop putting idolatrous ways in front of your face. And they weren't calling what they were doing that at all. They weren't, they weren't calling it that at all, but they needed to call it that. They needed to call their idolatry idolatry. Um, and, and so God's word calls us out for, for idolatry and how, how much we'd be helped if the things that we chase after in life, if we could call them the idols that they are, we'd be helped to tear them down and turn away from them. Yeah, if we called 
our sinful anger murder, if we called our lustful thoughts adultery. Yes, yes, yes. If we, if we let the Ten Commandments guide us categorically, uh, you know, if, if, if every time we're devoted to some passion in our lives that nobody can touch, that's worshiping another God. You know, Jesus got clear about this in his temptation in the wilderness when Satan came to him and commanded him to turn stones into bread. And we all want to think our first thought is there's nothing wrong with bread. But Jesus was crystal clear on that point because he said, man doesn't live by bread, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, which is to say, I'm going to worship God only and listen to his voice only, even though this other thing, I like it and it's pleasurable. That's not the determining factor here. I'm going to call what you're saying to me as a temptation to idolatry, and I'm going to reject it. I'm going to live by the word of God. Jesus That's was good. crystal clear, crystal clear about that. Um, and, and so, you know, whatever, whatever one of the Ten Commandments one might go to, uh, honor your father and your mother. Well, I'll, you know, I just, I'm really busy and I have an important job and I've got kids of my own and, and uh, yeah, that's right. That doesn't remove from you the obligation to honor your father and your mother. You have to decide what that looks like. But calling it being really busy with my job isn't as grievous as calling it dishonoring my father and my mother, is it? That just sounds a lot more hateful. Let's walk through these, Craig. You know, the second commandment uh, forbids um, uh, graven images, and we think, well... um, I don't have any. I don't bow down to any idols. Yeah, so so I'm all set there. But but let's <clears throat> let's call some of the stuff we get up to yeah. disobeying the commandment pretending to graven images. Yeah. Do I need a cross around my neck to feel close to God? That's an image of a created thing. You know. Do, do I only feel close to God when certain kind of music is being played? That uh, approaches uh, graven imagery because. God is to be found in his word, and he's not to be found in a style of music or a picture on a wall or a cross around my neck. Or does a place or a movie or a show awaken my, or a, or a song, awaken my affections for Christ in a way that the word doesn't? Yeah. That's a, see, that's, that's exactly right. And if I call it what it is, now it's uglier, and I'm not, I'm not dressing it up. I, it's, it, I'm helped in turning from it. Yeah, you're dealing in truth. You're trafficking in truth yeah. when you start to call things what they are. That's right. And, and you, already mentioned, you already mentioned lust and adultery because Jesus spoke to that one directly, pivoting off of the Ten Commandments. You know, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust for her in his heart has committed adultery with her already. And we need to take that word to heart. Because it's easy to say, well, who couldn't look at that girl? Who wouldn't look? She was good looking, and it's harmless. Yet Jesus says, if you lust in your heart for another woman, you have already committed adultery with your own wife. That's grievous. Uh, We would be helped in repenting from that sin if we called it the adultery that it is. Uh, You know, another, another one is uh, you shall not steal. Because the New Testament actually <clears throat> gives the, as it always does, 
the fuller explanation of how the law of God operates. And we learned that not, not only are we not to steal, but we're supposed to work with our own hands in order to have something to share with him who has need. So we're sort of back to the Israelites, you know, would a man rob God? It turns out that if I turn my back on a brother who's needy, or if I fail to work hard enough and live prudently enough to have enough to share with a brother who is needy, son of a gun, I am stealing. I'm actually stealing. Well, that's a different, that's a different motive, isn't it? That's a different incentive to turn from that sin. I don't want to be a thief. Thieves don't inherit the kingdom of God. I don't want to be an adulterer. Adulterers don't inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, and you mentioned murder. Uh, it doesn't Jesus wax eloquent on that one? Yeah, I mean, those who have uh, called their brother a fool, those who have been sinfully angry toward a brother, um, and and that can just be going around gossiping about a brother, tearing down a brother, besmirching his reputation to others. Um, that makes you, according to the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ, yeah. a murderer. And that that's abhorrent to think about. That's so repellent for us to think about. But this is what we're talking about, trafficking in truth categories. That's we, right. We, it is good for our souls, for our actions, to be called by things that make them repellent to us and abhorrent to us. Yes, yes, that's, that's exactly right. So, you know, I think we don't call our worldliness coveting as we ought to. Uh, we don't think of the obligation of protecting our brother's reputation, that the failure to do that is really violating the commandment against false witness. Uh, we have an obligation to protect our brother's uh, reputation, not to lie. We always get to tell the truth, but we don't turn the truth uh, to our own ends. We use truth in the service of love. Yeah, we don't necessarily say everything that we, we know is true. I don't tell everything I know. I shouldn't. Yeah. God forbid that people told everything they knew about me. Well, Craig, we've we've been talking a lot about sin, and we've kind of been nibbling at the edges of how this is good news to call sin sin and not to dress it up with euphemism or to excuse it with blame shifting or by diminishing or, or lessening the category. But let's wrap up this conversation by talking about why it's good news not to dress up the pig. Yeah. Well, the good news, Mitch, as I see it, is that the gospel, the grace of the gospel is God pardoning all of our iniquities once for all on account of Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross as the final and full and only sufficient payment for our sins. So God never holds our sins against us again. And not only that, God is so concerned for our well-being and his glory that he doesn't leave us as enslaved sinners. He not only pardons us, but he transforms us. He rescues us. He lifts us up out of the miry clay and sets our feet on the rock. So he makes us into people who can do righteousness, who can see 
as Romans 8 puts it, the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's exactly right. And so that's all good news. Why would I want to be engaged in anything that's contrary to that good news? I want to be engaged in only doing good, in only doing right, and turning from every sin however it presents itself. Yeah, using these sin categories, using this sin language is good news because, as you say, it's, it's Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection that is the means by which God pardons all of our iniquities. And when we start to dabble and call things things that are not iniquities, things that are not transgressions or sins, one ministry I've heard of uh, calls things hurts and habits and hang-ups, uh, which... <laughs> there's sound, euphemisms There's you. euphemisms, which sounds <coughs> cute, but, but what's the bad news about that is the Bible doesn't offer blood for hurts and habits and hang-ups. The Bible offers the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for transgressions and sins and iniquities. And so it is redemptive to call things what the Bible calls Absolutely. Jesus doesn't need to die on the cross for my hang-ups, but he sure needed to die on the cross for my sins. Yeah. Uh, Amen to that. Amen to that. We affirm, we continue to affirm, Christians are not pigs anymore. Bless God. We're not the pigs we once were. And we are now engaged in the process of putting aside our former piggishness. And so the word to us is let's not dress our piggishness up as though dressing it up makes it acceptable. And we can lead it around with us because, you know, you can dress Izzy up, but you can't take her out. Because she'll jump in the middle of a big mud puddle because a pig is a pig is a pig. Uh, so I, th- I think it's a good word for us to learn not to dress up our piggishness, but to call it what God calls it as our minds are renewed and to seek the grace of God to turn from our sins and to find that we will make progress in grace as we do that. Yeah, at our church... Um... I suppose I'd say every Sunday, at least it's our aim, to offer a prayer that is a kind of maybe low church confession of sin and assurance of pardon. And that's really what we're talking about. When we're talking about calling a sin a sin, it's not so that we will self-flagellate or you know stay in this muck and this mire and, and all of these kinds of things. It's it's to call these sins what the Bible calls them, and then to say, and thank you, Father, that your son's blood both pays for this sin, covers this sin, and you have given me your spirit so that I'm no longer a slave to this sin and can really make progress mm. in these sins. Mm. This is, we're, we're, we are, uh, we're neck deep in good news and gospel categories yes. in this conversation. Yes. Well... That's been helpful, Craig. Thank you for uh, encouraging us from the scriptures about why we ought not dress up a pig. (laughs) Uh, Many thanks again to our editor, John Pastor. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about the church where Craig and I have the joy of serving as pastors, you can go to cmcvermont.org. For this episode of From Dan to Beersheba, for Craig, I'm Mitch. Grace and peace to you.